Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Simone Ferracina to talk about his book, Ecologies of Inception, Design Potentials on a Warming Planet. Uh, Simone is the founding director of the Exaptive Design Office and a lecturer in architectural design and detail at the Edinburgh School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture. Thank you very much for being here with me today and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks for your invite. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Yes, of course. Um, I'm Italian. I studied architecture at the Academy of Architecture in Mendrisio in Switzerland worked in offices in Lugano, Paris, and Madrid. I eventually moved to New York City, where for 13 years I worked for um, Star Architect um, and uh, designed a wide range of buildings in Italy, Czech Republic, and Taiwan. Um, seen as project architect and project manager, um, a few of them through all the way to construction. Um, and then I became increasingly dissatisfied with the scope of um, what I was doing um, and interested in questions rather than answers or solutions um, and slowly drifted towards academia, first founding an online magazine on experimental and transdisciplinary design research, Organs Everywhere, which has now become a DOE case files book series published by Punkton Books. Then acquiring a PhD in philosophy, art, and social thought at the European Graduate School, and eventually moving to the UK first to collaborate with Professor Rachel Armstrong, uh, who I know you spoke with, by the way, um, in the Experimental Architecture Group at Newcastle University, um, and then to take up a lectureship in architectural design and detail, as mentioned, at the University of Edinburgh, um, and more specifically at the Edinburgh School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture, Isala where I have been teaching and carrying out research for the past um, five years. Well, thank you very much. And so my first question, and I hate to ask something that kind of doesn't get past the the third cover of the book, but <laughs> the idea of eco- ecology of inception, very important. It's throughout the book in a very broad spectrum. So I, I was wondering if you can walk us through that concept a little more, because I think it's important to everything else we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Maybe I'll start with um, how the whole thing came came about, um, which is really the, the book, the context, uh, the context for the emergence of the book, which is uh, also very clear on the cover, uh, the climate emergency and its ongoing effects on human and natural systems, uh, a dwindling CO2 budget, um, and in particular, the construction industry's massive contributions to both global carbon emissions, almost 40%, and waste generations. I, I don't know the numbers for the US, but it's 60% in Europe, including demolition, mining, and coring activities. Um, and so this prompted an obvious question, which is a question that many are asking themselves. How do we radically transform design practices so that they become forms of uh, environmental stewardship and care, as opposed to drivers of planet-destroying uh, Activities. So how do we, uh, designers of buildings, but also designers of all sorts of other stuff, this is a book that talks about um, building, but also um, toasters, 
chairs, um, um, all sorts of other um, objects, um, and particularly in a Western context. So, so how do we designers in a Western kind of over-consuming context um, begin to recognize and forswear our contributions to ecocide? How do we decouple design potentials from ecologies of extraction, exploitation, and obsolescence? And what framed my approach um, to these very open-ended questions, admittedly, um, was observing the pervasiveness of what I call technical tabula rasa, which is uh, the other key, one of the other key concepts in the book. The tendency of every project to start from scratch, not only in the sense of occupying an empty plot of land, rather of depending almost exclusively on the extraction and processing of primary construction materials of uh, new and purified substances that bear no trace of previous lives, landscapes, or intentions, and are understood to be relatively formless or capable of attaining many different forms. And here my question was, why is this the case? Why is this approach so very prevalent and even commonsensical in Western culture? Why do materials mostly come into the picture as a way to translate or embody a design that's already there that precedes them? Uh, why do we assume that form is imparted by a designer onto a formless substrate uh, as opposed to uh, negotiated with that which already exists and has form? Um, or passed down from one generation to um, the next. And uh, what is the thinking and conceptual infrastructure, particularly what Mary Midgley might call the philosophical plumbing, propping up these practices and um, behavior? And strangely enough, this led me to Aristotle's theory of uh, substance. So uh, Aristotle separates matter, hile, from form, morphe, and associates them with potentiality and actuality, respectively. Um, according to this view, uh, on one side, we can imagine a wet lump of clay, uh, a material, uh, which is assumed to be malleable and capable of changing into many different shapes, and therefore rich in potentials. And on the other, the fired clay figure into which that material is formed, um, uh, and which is understood to be relatively fixed or actualized and therefore incapable of changing. And it is this basic uh, but commonsensical understanding of potentiality of the ability to change uh, as necessarily dependent on a raw and formless materiality and homogeneous as well um, that determines many of our attitudes towards objects, their ability to change, and um, their value. And the validity of this understanding is what the book aims to undermine and unravel, starting from um, the notion of um, ecology of inception. So, so I, I, I took it a bit far, but but here we are. Um, and um, so, so I said that um, it was Aristotle's separation of matter and form or hylomorphism that identified potentiality, so the ability to do, the ability to change as the key problem the book needed to grapple with. And the first step to do this was to understand it in the context of design. 
potentiality doesn't rely on the intrinsic properties of an object, uh, but on how these contribute to a broader set or environment. Um, a pencil is not a pencil, really, meaning an object used to make marks, to draw, etc., in the middle of a glacier or in the depths of an ocean, but only in relation to at least a sheet of paper and a human hand. In other words, the potential to write or draw does not fully belong to the pencil, uh, but is a function of its encounter with a broader constellation of objects. And it is these constellations um, designed to target and achieve specific potentials that I call ecologies of inception. Therefore, um, an ecology of inception orients objects towards one another and allows them to be understood together and to share common languages and functional scripts. I chose the word ecology uh, from the Greek oikos, meaning family or house, to suggest a fundamental relational unit um, and the term inception because on one side, the Latin incipere, to begin, and capere, to be receptive, to grasp, foreground the ways in which tuning objects towards one another might spark new performances and interactions. For example, my ability to grab the pencil and draw a figure in a sheet of paper. Uh, on the other, however, in capere, to capture in, to enclose, also alludes to the violence implicit in annexation, appropriation, and inclusion. It suggests that making useful or powerful within an ecology is simultaneously a making useless and powerless of something else, while something or someone other left outside of it. Um, and, and this process of purification is a key ingredient in the technique of tabula rasa. Purification um, not only as the removal of impurities from gold ore to pure gold, but also as the removal of that which obstructs access um, that stands uh, between. In any case, drawing the boundaries of ecologies of inception um, sets the parameters according to which items are included in, but also excluded from such an ecology. And membership in an ecology is not granted once and for all, but depends uh, on an object's continued ability to perform and comply. So when the pencil breaks and can no longer be used in an ecology of drawing, or when the design of the rotor blade in a wind turbine is superseded and can no longer deliver the most efficient output in an ecology of um, energy production, or when a vacant building in need of repairs no longer abides by an ecology of real estate development that aims to maximize that value, uh, these objects are deemed worthless and thrown away, discarded, and demolished and eventually burnt or landfilled. So in this sense, ecologies of inception are both value-making and value-raising machines. And importantly, I think, um, they are both at the same time. Um, I, I think the, the positive aspect of, of this kind of political view of um, design or seeing design through the lens of ecologies of inception um, is that this foregrounds um, uh, not only, again, the inherent violence of um, design, 
but but the fact that object are uh, objects are fundamentally relational and therefore to a degree always unstable so always capable of being otherwise of unlocking different powers um and yeah and and, and this kind of um ability to be otherwise is really from grounded in in the book in, in many different ways but but i'll let you ask a question <laughs> no, I, I, uh, again, I, I covered quite a few of my questions, so I appreciate that. Uh, one key, another, again, there's a lot of themes. There's another theme that comes up a lot, and you've, you've mentioned a few times, the idea of materiality. You did talk about how the average architect kind of selects materials based on their compliance and doing what we need them to do. But another, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, another thing that you bring up in the book that I was hoping you could kind of elaborate for us a little bit was, again, with recent trends and interest in sustainability you know people have been examining how much energy buildings use but what a lot of people have just recently and i think you even call it a novel archaeological understanding the actual cost and the effect of extracting or finding or creating these materials so i was wondering if you could kind of walk us through that a little bit yeah absolutely um i think maybe there are two questions i mean there, there are many questions to do um uh, with, with materiality in the book, and and I would say in many ways energy is is a topic that that uh, the book misses because I'm so concerned uh, with uh, with materials. Um, but um, one first aspect, um, one first way that the book um, uh, engages with the notion of materiality is to think of materials again in a fundamentally relational way. To think that more or less anything can be a material. I, I present examples of um, studios I run at university where discarded materials, all sorts of different materials that may not pertain usually to um, the built environment, um, can become architectural or, or can be reactivated uh, just because they've been given enough uh, attention, care, uh, they have been given time, because time has been spent to develop. Uh, tectonic assemblages, way that, ways that things can can come together in, in a productive way, um, and and this is something that uh, re resonates with Kitty Lloyd Thomas, uh, for instance, work on the specifications, where um, it is very clear that uh, materials are not kind of lumps of stuff, um, but they are um, social constructions um, as well. Um, and so the idea that um, the materials of, uh, of the palette of materials available to architects might not be what industry presents us with the various steel, timber, um, uh, aluminum, glass, and so on, but that um, architecture can become omnivorous, can uh, begin to absorb just by means of really paying attention to what is there uh, already. Uh, all sorts of different uh, material substrates and potentially re-value re, uh, and um, reactivate them. Um, so, so this is also uh, also foregrounds importantly uh, the encounter again with materials, the physical uh, real-world encounter with materials, as opposed to what I call in the book hypermaterials which uh, are really another form of um, equivalence, uh, in, in a sense similar to money, um, that uh, we presume to, because we have a, a spreadsheet that tells us uh, 
uh, maybe what embodied carbon or something is, or we have uh, specifications um, that clearly define uh, the performance range of a certain product. We tend to assume that that pro product is equivalent, no matter where we are in the world and no matter where that material comes from. Whereas um, I use what, what you uh, mentioned, it's kind of archaeological um, um, understanding of materials, particularly through the work of Kilmo and, and Jane Hutton. Um, we need to start thinking of materials as something, and Jane Hutton uh, calls them beautifully, and, and I can never say it better. Uh, fragments of other landscapes. So it's really understanding, beginning to understanding materials as something that doesn't just show up on our on our doorstep and it doesn't matter where it comes from, but often comes from afar, often causes incredible environmental damage, often causes social damage associated with that. Um, um, and, and of course, uh, a, a lot of the ways we use materials nowadays are absolutely disproportionate in relation to the actual damage. Aluminum is probably one of the worst uh, materials from an environmental standpoint, and we use it for several um, different uh, products and containers and so forth um, that get thrown away um, immediately after uh, being purchased. So th there's also a lack of uh, understanding of the value of materials and 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 what they embody, um, so so that is one that is perhaps one um, aspect of this question. Um, the other question comes in uh, perhaps when we think about something like recycling uh, or upcycling even, um, which I, I tend to be quite critical of in in the book again precisely because it doesn't account for all the environmental effects and and remainders and pollutions um that uh the the, the remanufacturing or secondary manufacturing um um is responsible for but but what is interesting here um i think as well is um so not only uh uh, it, it is again. It, it is very difficult to claim that aluminum an aluminum window frame, for example, can be perfectly um, uh, melted down and reformed into something else, um, and um, that is has been perfectly upcycled because um, someone like um, Carl Zimring, for example, has shown in his fantastic book uh, Aluminum Cycled. Um, that the secondary processing of scrap aluminum is still incredibly uh, destructive uh, and um, and damaging, um, but also and this is a uh, numbers from um, a talk by Maria Certo, for example, if we think about um, one aluminum uh, frame, a simple aluminum frame, um, of course, upcycling may seem admirable, but it would still dissipate the 54 kilograms of minerals, five kilograms of chemicals, 70 kilograms of water, and 39 kilograms of fossil fuels required to manufacture it. Um, and I think this is where um, the meaning of ecologies of inception as well changes towards uh, really the end of the book 
from an understanding of um, synchronous constellations of objects that, that are able to communicate with one another and to work together and co-function. Um, to um, so so that would be let's say a, a cross cut through an ecology inception to a transversal cut of um, these ecologies in time to to really understand um, the, the damage, the various processes, the various intentionalities um, involved in in these materials, and, and so to start to look at uh, both materials and buildings and and building components not on the basis of what we might think that today is fashionable or, or beautiful uh, or um, consistent with a, a broader uh, conceptual and architectural intent uh, which of course are important things but um, to foreground another understanding of value that might be independent from um, these various projects, which of course are uh, ecologies of inception, um, and um, and instead foreground the embodiment, whatever is embodied in, in these objects, in these buildings, being labor, for example, um, being, of course, carbon and energy, um, being environmental damage, being pollution. So it, it is very hard to um, put a price on these things, particularly when we... Uh, has a, a, a really decreasing uh, carbon budget, and and we should try to hold on as much as possible to um, to what we have. So, so these are some of um, kind of the, the the general ways that the book um, engages with um, with the notion of uh, materiality and time. I would say that, that is really the key other aspects and understands them across generations. So if the tabula rasa, if um, starting from scratch tends to be associated with the need to express oneself, to need to express or, or kind of uh, develop a consistent um, uh, project, um, instead understanding outputs as something that spans generations, as something that one receives and is responsible for, um, and has to kind of uh, maintain and and uh, try to reuse or repurpose and and keep and try to uh, um, pass on to to the next generations. I think that's a, a very different um, perspective on on value than we're um, used to potentially. Absolutely. And so again, we've just I know we've only begun to scratch the surface of quite a few of the big themes in there. Uh, but again, now that the book, and again, my understanding is recently finished, now that the book has been finished, you know, a question I always like to end with is, you know, what, what would be next for you? What, what other project have you now moved on to? <laughs> right. Um, I, uh, I'm starting and, and I have a few projects, uh, at, let's say at various stages of, um, development. W one of the concepts we haven't quite talked about, um, here is the notion of ecology of inception. Oh, sorry, the ecology of suspension, um, which in the book, uh, towards the, the end of the book, really um, supplements this somewhat simple, perhaps a naive notion of a teleological enclosure, uh, and instead starts thinking about the gaps or what happens between one ecology and, and another. 
Um, and of course, that relates to this um, um, diachronic way of reading ecologies of inceptions to, to, towards um, the end of the book. But so the the notion of ecology of suspension is something I have developed um, in the book, but that um, can definitely use some more development. And and I think there there are interesting uh, ways of starting to think about um, objects. Uh, outside of, uh, let's say, the, the epistemic terrors, uh, territories that are demarcated by ecologies of inception. So, so that is one of the projects that really looks at questions of suspension, latency, uh, storage, and, and architecture. Um, another project uh, quite different in, in scope is a collaboration with Alessandro Poli, um, Italian radical architect uh, who, who was part of Super Studio for, for a number of years, um, uh, which focuses on a project at Zeno, a self-sufficient culture. He developed between uh, 1972 and 1980 um, and exhibited with Super Studio, in fact, uh, at the 1978 uh, Venice Biennale. Um, which documents the life of a Tuscan farmer, Zeno Fiaschi, and uh, um, and, and captures um, a way of life steeped in routines of maintenance, care, use, and reuse, and particularly um, a, a fantastic ability to uh, reinvent what he already has around him for uh, various activities um, required doing the uh, farming and, and, and other various um, uh, occupations. So, so it's it's a it's a very humbling um, kind of project that shows how um, somehow you know after modernity and and um, we, we tend to believe uh, that that we are so uh, advanced um, and and more and more often as we look back as as we look back at indigenous communities as, as we look back at in this case kind of indigenous uh, um, Italian farming um, communities, we find an amazing um, uh, richness and kind of uh, vibrancy in um, 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 creativity and the ability to, to do with very little. Um, so, so that's something really that I, I'm looking forward to um, celebrating in that book. Interesting. Well, again, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, speak with me today. Yeah, thank you so much, Brian. It's a pleasure. And, and pleasure's all mine. And for everybody listening, the book is Ecologies of Inception, Design Potentials on a Warming Planet. I want to thank you again for listening and have a great day. <laughs>